On the 16th of October 1962, after writing a poem about a maternally possessive gorgon, Sylvia Plath wrote in triumph to her mother, I am a genius of a writer. I have it in me. I am writing the best poems of my life. They will make my name. Newly separated from her husband, suffering with a heavy bout of flu and struggling to hire a nanny for her two young children, Plath was nevertheless waking at four or five every morning and finishing a poem before breakfast. Over the next three days, she wrote The Jailer, Lesbos, and Stopped Dead. The following week, she wrote to her friend Ruth Fainlight, The muse has come to live, now Ted has gone, and my God, what a sweeter companion. Hello everybody, and welcome to Ear Read This, Edinburgh's most powerful book podcast. I'm Ash, your host, and today I'm talking about The Jailer by Sylvia Plath. The narrator of this 1962 poem suffers violence and sexual abuse at the hands of an unnamed jailer. With seven hours knocked out of their right mind, the narrator assesses what remains of their identity after the torments and degradation they have endured. It is a stark and brutal poem featuring Kafkaesque imagery of imprisonment and the dreadful codependency of victim and victimizer. In the 1970s, the poem was fundamental in establishing Plath's posthumous reputation as a feminist icon. Bethany Hickok writes that the jailer's appearance in a feminist periodical, R.A.T., immediately shifted the context of Plath's poem from the private, domestic sphere to the feminist, public sphere. Recently, the poem has been studied for its racist, anti-black language, a subject which my guest for today's episode has a particular interest in. Emily Van Dyne is a poet, writer and Fulbright scholar whose articles on Plath can be read on the American Poetry Review, the Harvard Review, Electric Literature and Lit Hub. And I'll be leaving links to those in the episode description box below. Emily's book, Loving Sylvia Plath, is due out later this year. Now, just to let you know, the poem does contain a racial epithet, which you will hear multiple times throughout the course of the episode. Not only as we read through the poem, but as Emily and I talk about how and why Plath uses such language in this poem and elsewhere in her work, and the way in which this usage has been critically ignored or justified. Depending on where you read The Jailer, you may find its title spelt the English way, E-R, or the American way, O-R. Bethany Hickok writes that Plath's drafts of The Jailer indicate that she spelt it with an E initially, but switched to the O spelling in later drafts and then consistently used that spelling. We have Ted Hughes to thank for this discrepancy, the jailer being one of what he called the more personally aggressive poems that he suppressed from the first editions of Ariel. When he did include it in the 1981 collected poems, the spelling had been re-anglicized. Um, okay, so it's interesting. You know, it's one of the poems that Hughes excised from his uh, published version of Ariel that came out in England in 1965. And it was also taken out of the American version that came out a year later. So I didn't read it until I, I think I was, it was, I was out of college. Now I probably read it in the collective poems before I graduated, but the thing is it there's, it's so big in the collected poems, right? Like they're, you just kind of, it's one of the ones I may have like read through and not thought much of. Um, and then of course the Ariel, the restored edition came out and she included it in her original version of the manuscript then it, it it struck me as an important poem. I've always been really troubled by the poem because it uses this really racist language. And so one of the things that I've been trying to tackle in a couple of standalone essays 
one of which just came out in American Poetry Review, but also in, in my book, Loving Sylvia Plath, is anti-Black racism in Plath's uh, poetry and her letters and in the bell jar. And so this is a sort of startling example of that. And so I'm actually talking specifically uh, about the fourth stanza, right? So she says, oh, little gimlets, what holes this papery day is already full of. He has been burning me with cigarettes, pretending I am a negress with pink paws. I am myself, that is not enough. And so, um, of course, she also uh, uses the N-word in Ariel, which was written the same month, right? It was written uh, 10 days after The Jailer, which was written on uh, October 17th, 1962. Um, and there's a startling lack of, I should say, redress, but also address of, of this language in the literature about Platt's poetry. And so part of what I'm writing about in my book is um, some, some of the reasons for that, right? Which is, I think uh, Plath was taken up, you know, rightfully so by the second wave feminist movement, but we tend to associate the second wave feminist movement with, um, at least in America, with, with white feminism, right? So the sort of icons of that movement are people like Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan, who are, are white, you know, highly educated middle-class women. Um, Friedan went to Smith College, right? Just like Sylvia Plath. So a lot of the women that are doing work on Plath are women like Plath, right? And uh, so they're, they're kind of ignoring this language whether because they just don't know what to do with it or because maybe they're using this kind of language too, or maybe they have these same biases or racist attitudes, whatever the reason, it, there's just not a lot of discussion about it. So that's one of the things that I've been trying to deal with um, in, in the book. So that's how I ended up back kind of obsessed with the jailer. So a couple of weeks ago, I was going through and, and rereading it and, and taking notes for a section of the book. And then it occurred to me that she uses that word negress in another uh, part of her work. She uses it in the bell jar. Um, mm. So I don't know if you remember, but the early on in the book, she and Doreen, who's like her kind of like wild-minded bestie, right? Doreen is often presented as a kind of like alter ego or, or twin of Esther in the bell jar. Mm. So early on, they're in a taxi and they're going to some like planned party by the magazine and they're stuck in traffic. And this, this DJ like comes over to the car and is kind of like, Hey ladies, like, why don't you come hang out with me and my friend? And so they get out of the car and they go to a bar with him and a friend of his, and they leave just with the DJ and they go back to his apartment. And there's a really violent encounter that um, Doreen has with the DJ who she then ends up dating like for the rest of the summer. Um, but before that, uh, she's described by Esther as a dusky negress. Mm. And so I thought that that was an interesting parallel, right? That, that you have this poem where she says, he's pretending she's a negress with pink paws. So keep in mind, right? That it's not the speaker who says, I am this thing, right? She, the, the speaker says that the, the person who is imprisoning her is pretending that she is this thing. And then there's these acts of like extreme violence that happen. And so a similar kind of relationship, I, I'll say, takes place uh, in the mm. bar between the DJ, whose name is Lenny Shepard, and the Doreen character. So that's how I got into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're, you're, it's, it's the same dynamic. It's that kind of, uh, with that, that comparison legitimizes violence or, or suppressive violence type thing. 
Bingo, right? So I think that that's exactly it, that in order for the jailer to be able to excuse his actions, right? He, he couldn't do this to his wife, right? So he's got yeah. to base his wife um, in order to treat her the way that he is. Um, and so his version of debasing her is, is a kind of blackface, right? He sort of paints this black face onto her, then he's able to do this violence. But of course, there's it's also an act of violence on Plath's part as the writer of the poem, right? To 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 put her speaker in blackface and to then hypersexualize uh, that speaker as well, right? Which you know calls to mind all these uh, horrible stereotypes that we have, particularly in the United States about black women, right? That they're, they're, they're able to be disposed of, they're able to be jailed, they're, they, they need to be jailed to be corrected, right? All, all kinds of sort of awful things, tropes that come out of, of slavery and Jim Crow and yeah. So here are the first two stanzas of The Jailer. My night sweats grease his breakfast plate. The same placard of blue fog is wheeled into position with the same trees and headstones. Is that all he can come up with? The rattler of keys. I have been drugged and raped, seven hours knocked out of my right mind into a black sack where I relax, fetus or cat, lever of his wet dreams. Immediately we have a sense of the jailer feeding off the narrator's suffering. My night sweats grease his breakfast plate. This is a cyclical relationship, the torments of the night providing sustenance for the morning, night sweats suggesting a sexual dimension to the narrator's sufferings. And ahead of the placard of blue fog, we already have a sense of day and night losing meaning, the boundary between them smudged with grease. The day is denied any depth, being merely a placard of blue fog. It is just demonstrative, a sign denoting day, not a real day. Being wheeled into position puts us in mind of institutions, of food trolleys rattling down the halls of asylums or prisons. Is that all he can come up with, the rattler of keys? This tells us firstly that the jailer is obviously running the show, but it is also something of a slight on the imaginative powers of the jailer. Is that all he can come up with? Is that all he's got? And then we have the brutally unequivocal first line of the second stanza, I have been drugged and raped. In 1970, seven years after Platt's death, the poem appeared in Robin Morgan's anthology Sisterhood is Powerful, where it was classified as protest poetry. Morgan is well known for her own poem, Arraignment, in which she declares, I accuse Ted Hughes of the murder of Sylvia Plath. Later in Arraignment, Morgan makes what appears to be a series of direct references to today's poem. Her accusation of rape, says Morgan, could be conceived as metaphor, and besides, it is permissible by law for a man to rape his wife in body and in mind. It is not a crime for him to malappropriate her imagery, or even to withhold her most revealing indictments against her jailer. Body and mind, Morgan stresses. This wasn't just physical abuse, but textual abuse, abuse of intellectual legacy. Abuse, if you like, of Plath's imagination. In the same year, The Jailer was also published in RAT Subterranean News, a counterculture newspaper run by second-wave feminists. In the recently published Bloomsbury Handbook to Sylvia Plath, Bethany Hickok chronicles the way in which Plath's writings and the jailer turned her into the avatar for feminism that she is today. Though doubtful of whether Plath herself would have approved of RAT, Hickok explains the particular appeal of the jailer to the newspaper's editors, writing, 
The poem documents the terror, shame, violence and intimacy of domestic abuse and rape, issues that gained significant traction in the 1970s among feminist political activists and poets. Back to the poem, the narrator has had seven hours knocked out of her right mind, into a black sack. Strange phrasing this, seven hours, perhaps indicative of how long you would normally sleep. The narrator is being denied ordinary sleep and rest. Instead, she is either knocked unconscious or drugged. Out of my right mind might carry the usual meaning, just not being in my right mind, not being myself. But Brooke Fraser has raised the intriguing possibility that Plath may be meaning the right hemisphere of the brain, the part which, as Fraser says, is responsible for attention, memory and reasoning. The disabling of these three in a victim is, of course, of great advantage to the victimizer. Into a black sack where I relax, fetus or cat, lever of his wet dreams. Tossed into a sack like an unwanted child or cat to be drowned, and lever of his wet dreams, the narrator is just machinery facilitating the jailer's fantasies. So again, even amongst this account of, of misery and abuse, we have the sense of a bit of a dig at the jailer's inferior imaginative powers. Why does he need a lever to operate his fantasy? He seems to be lacking the adequate equipment to dream for himself. D did she talk about this much in her in her journals and in her? Do, I mean, do we have a kind of? We don't have her journals from no. you know from those last years. Uh, uh, tragically, I think because um, I I mean I know we know she kept them. And so my sense is that she would certainly have been writing about these things. What we do have in terms of primary source material from that time, we do have those 14 letters that she wrote to Ruth Boucher, her therapist turned confidant, who was the model for Dr. Nolan in the Bell Jar and who Platt saw again in the winter of 1959, 1960, when she was living in Boston with Hughes. And so she was writing to Boycher throughout. Boycher, um, there's a they, there was a whole. I don't know if you know this, but the the Boycher letters, of course, we didn't have them until 2018. They were published mm. because there was a what they call a putative biographer, right, named Harriet Rosenstein, who had, had befriended Ruth Boycher and had all of this extraordinary material. Didn't write the book and then hid it from view for mm. never returned it to Boycher, despite Boycher asking her for it back and then um, tried to sell it in 2017 for uh, a cool 875,000 pounds. Oh my gosh. I know. Uh, at which point Smith College, which is the, uh, they have the archive that holds Ruth Boycher's papers said, no, those belong to us, <laughs> right? Um, and they also of course have a large archive of, of Plot's work. And so there was a trial and um, so apparently during the trial, uh, they asked Harriet Rosenstein, who's still living, you know, when you asked Ruth Boycher how many letters she had from Sylvia Plath, what did she say? And she went like this, like she held out her hands. So oh she gosh. burned the vast majority of them. She kept these, these 14, uh, nine of which are from the last year of Plath's life, one of which is from the week before she died. Just, sorry, just just for, for just for the audio listeners, that was that was about a foot. You just, but uh... yeah, which is, I mean, again, you think about like, well, I think of a couple of things. Like, first of all, we have so many letters from Sylvia, and then like a foot's worth were burned. Oh my god! I mean, did the woman ever stop writing? Apparently not. It's extraordinary. Um, but so we do have these uh, 
these, these, uh, these 14 with the last nine from the last year of past life. And so in those, I, I have a chapter that I'm, uh, in my book about how the, those, the, the letters read like liner notes to Ariel, right? Like you can really see the way the poems are sort of germinating in her brain. Um, she says things like she'll sort of like decry her marriage to Hughes and say like, it's enough to make one sail off to Lesbos. And then of course, you know, she writes on Lesbos and there's an incredible moment where she, uh, essentially like quotes herself or paraphrases to herself from the applicant. I'm not disaster proof after all my years with you, um, but I am proof against, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, so these existed for so long, we didn't have them. And so there was this sense of mystery about Platt's writing process, right? Like, how did she do this? And I think the letters are um, a really incredible way into understanding at least part of how she did what she did. Um, so we do at least have that, even though we don't have the, the journals. But one of the things that I, I think, I mean, there's a lot of what, what small body of literature there is about anti-Black racism in Platt's work that exists, a lot of it spends its time kind of like justifying it or like trying to find ways that like it's okay. Like, oh, well, she didn't mean it like that. Or, you know, she was using it the way like John Lennon used it and like, you know, woman is the blank of the world, um, which is like, to me, like, that is like, a, that's a terrible song, right? <laughs> For a lot of reasons, like there's so many better ways to express that sentiment. Um, but also I think that it, it just doesn't reckon with white supremacy and it doesn't reckon with like Platt's, Platt's experience of being part of white supremacy, right? And I think it's really sort of vital that we do that now. My sense is that, you know, she was using this kind of language with what she understood as a kind of authority, right right or wrong. I think it's wrong, but it is what it is. On to the third and fourth stanzas. Something is gone, my sleeping capsule, my red and blue zeppelin, drops me from a terrible altitude. Carapace smashed, I spread to the beaks of birds. Oh, little gimlets, what holes this papery day is already full of. He has been burning me with cigarettes, pretending I am a negress with pink paws. I am myself. That is not enough. In the first of these stanzas, we hear an abstract, fantastical representation of suffering, revealed in the second as sadistic, racially inflected torture. Something is gone. Those seven hours, her memory, her attention, her grip on reality, now that she cannot trust her own senses, now that she cannot rely on the day being a day, cannot sleep when she chooses to in order to restore herself. Something being gone, just something, is an understatement here, I think, and meant to sound pathetic. She expresses the terrible altitude of her degradation by blending her red and blue sleeping capsule with a zeppelin. Having heard already that she has been drugged and raped, this drop is presumably the drop from consciousness to unconsciousness, the state in which terrible things are done to her. Next, like Kafka's Gregor Samsa, she is transformed into an insect, her carapace smashed, her remains spreading to the beaks of birds. These beaks in turn become little gimlets, boring holes in a papery day, another flimsy, two-dimensional day, recalling the placard of blue fog from earlier. Then we come to another unequivocal, unpoetic line, he has been burning me with cigarettes. This has the tone of realisation to it. It is as if she has woken up and seen the sequence of imagery she has been dreaming, beaks, gimlets, holes in a papery day, for what they really are, 
the semi-conscious mind interpreting the sensation of being burnt with cigarettes. Horrible as this is, notice that even the narrator's tranquilized, traumatized imaginings have variety, even beauty, in direct contrast to the crude, racist conceit of the jailer. Jerome Ellison Murphy has written that the distasteful reference to pink paws deploys a stereotyped imagery of blackness, particularly feminine blackness, as not only exotic but primitive, animal, sensual. Yet these pink paws also emphasise vulnerability and delicacy. Distasteful as it is, it is important to note that the reference is framed as the jailer's fancy, his brand of squalid sadism, and not an identity that Platt's narrator appropriates for herself. The fourth stanza's final line, I am myself, that is not enough, addresses this. The jailer has to pretend she is something else in order to enact his fantasies. As herself, she is not enough for him. But the line also indicates that the narrator's sufferings cannot be sufficiently expressed in her own personal context. Other contexts are needed. Here, like elsewhere in Plath's work, her narrator becomes what Carl Rollison calls a sinagure for suffering. Throughout the poem, the narrator's despair keeps assuming or trying to assume poetic, metaphoric form, only to be brought back down from a terrible altitude to blunt, unpoetic narration. I have been drugged and raped. He has been burning me with cigarettes. Plath is saying if you are imprisoned, being yourself is not remotely enough. Our narrator needs the transformative subversion of imagining things were different. This is not mere escapism. Realising the full horror of what is being done to her demands abstract representation. The dull facts are not enough to articulate the measure of it. The starkness of he has been burning me with cigarettes is still less disturbing than the idea that as he burns her, the half-conscious narrator is picturing her own skin as a papery day already scorched through with holes. Plath is obliterating the comfy idea that as long as you are yourself, that is enough. Her narrator is not enough for her jailer. He must pretend she is an obscene caricature to enact his grimy desires. More importantly, just being herself is not enough to survive. It is herself that is being denied and eroded. Therefore, she must depend on imagined selves and dream of invented realities. And finally, being herself and just stating the facts of what is being done to her is not enough to truly and fully witness her sufferings. Comparing this idea to the glory of the unadorned self found in the poems of Walt Whitman and Robert Lowell, Kathleen Margaret Lant has written, somehow in the works of Sylvia Plath, the unadorned physical self of the female subject cannot function as a metaphor in the same way that it does for the male subject. The female body reminds us only that the female self is unworthy, inadequate, and ultimately vulnerable rather than ascendant. You've written quite a lot about gaslighting, and uh, I, I, I'm wary of taking too biographical the reading of, of The Jailer and, and, and saving it for asking you a bit more about Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath, but feel free to bring that in if you think it's the right time. After reading your article and then going back to the poem, the poem feels like a just to just to move away from the race element for a moment, almost like a dramatization of of gaslighting. Yeah. Uh, the the reference to the uh, high cold mask of amnesia, the the idea that these these awful things are being done to the narrator, but then um, not remembered and not accounted for mm -hmm. and just forgotten. Yeah, and that's a, a recurring theme in a lot of the poems from that time, right? So there's uh, Lioness. And of course, in Amnesiac, she starts out, no use, no use now, begging, recognize. 
and then the last uh, three lines are, oh, sister, mother, wife, sweet Lethe is my life. I am never, never, never coming home, uh, which I have a very fond memory of uh, yelling that at the top of my lungs with like seven other Plath scholars and at a <laughs> bar in Belfast in 2017. <laughs> um, and uh, the lioness takes up uh, similar, they, they were apparently one poem that sort of was were split into two. Uh, by, oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, oh. she was working on them as, as one poem. But it's interesting. And the last line of, of lioness is the white gape of his mind was the real tabula rasa. And Hughes also, after Plath died, he wrote about this, this issue of forgetfulness and forgetting and a kind of uh, willful forgetting. Um, in, in the introduction to her, the 1982 edition of her journals, which was heavily abridged, she wrote an introduction that was republished later in a journal called Grand Street. And uh, he says, I'm paraphrasing, but something to the effect of like, well, then I, I burned the one and uh, I didn't want her children to have to see it. In those days, I considered forgetfulness as essential to survival. So I think uh, there are these issues of kind of pretending not to know something that you know is actually happening in order to gaslight, you know, another person, yeah. right? Uh, and then there's this thing where Hughes seems to be kind of trying to like gaslight himself in terms of like, I'm just going to forget that these things occurred, or I'm going to forget that my wife at one time felt this way or whatever, which of course we know mm. is, it's just, that's not possible that the human mind doesn't work that way, right? Um, but what part of what I write about is also the issue of gaslighting Plath fans and scholars, right? So um, the, this sense that we all sort of had, like, I feel like I'm not being told something, right? And then when you would say that out loud in a classroom or you would put it in print, like frequently you would be admonished um, that you were imagining things or you were, you know, a crazy feminist or, you know, a radical um, and that like, you know, nothing of that thing, nothing of that kind ever happened, right? Between the two of them, there was no violence between them that, that Hughes was never violent or, you know, she was, she was just crazy and her craziness drove him crazy and drove him to leave the marriage. And so for me, when I read, before I even read the Boitra letters, but when I first read about them, I thought to myself like, I think that's the article you're referring to, right? Because my sense mm. was like, well, of course, right? I mean, of course this happened. I mean, it just was not surprising to anyone who had been reading Plath and reading about Plath and reading Hughes that he would have been violent with her. I mean, he was violent, I think, with all of the women in his life at various points. And there's quite a bit of, including his sister, right? And there's there's quite a bit of documentation of that, not just by those women, but by other people as well. Um, Plath records an incident where Hughes hit Alwyn. She writes about it in a letter to her mother in uh, 1960. I mean, or no, 1961, sorry. Yeah, so it's like, this is not terribly surprising, but then there's this other form of gaslighting that happens because when those letters first came to light and what we didn't have the letters in full, but we had little like snippets of them that the antiquarian bookseller had put on his website. And one of those, of course, I mean, he was no fool, right? Uh, said, um, Ted beat me up physically and I miscarried afterwards, right? We had known that Plath had miscarried in 1961 and that there was sort of something af amiss in their marriage at that time. But please forgive me because my cat is about to knock my son's advent calendar off of our dining room. <laughs> so when you look at it, the timeline and you, you put that into the timeline, it's sort of like, okay, well, that makes sense. 
But when the allegations came to light and the letters existence came to light, all of the coverage, particularly in the British media, was like, um, these are shocking allegations, right? Like, oh, can you believe this? Like, oh, how, how shocking, how, how terrible. And my feeling was like, these are not shocking allegations at all. Robin uh-huh. Morgan published a poem that explicitly said this stuff, right? Because I, I have a hunch she had talked to Harry Rosenstein who had read these letters in the seventies, but that's a whole other story. Um, and and she was, they, they tried to sue her for libel, right? I mean, so uh, to say that is is to also sort of gaslight the public into thinking like, oh, well, we, we had no idea. It's like, no, you, you did. You did have an idea. Lots of people said this. Lots of people tried to make this public and all of them were sort of shushed as hysterical. Here are the fifth, sixth, and seventh stanzas. The fever trickles and stiffens in my hair. My ribs show. What have I eaten? Lies and smiles. Surely the sky is not that colour. Surely the grass should be rippling. All day gluing my church of burnt matchsticks, I dream of someone else entirely, and he, for this subversion, hurts me. He, with his armour of fakery, his high, cold masks of amnesia. How did I get here? Indeterminate criminal. I die with variety. Hung, starved, burned, hooked. In the first stanza, we have the sense of how this cycle of suffering has become habitual. The fever first trickles, then stiffens in her hair. She is starved, showing ribs, and all she has eaten are lies and smiles. Fed a diet of lies, reality has been turned on its head. She no longer recognises the world. Surely the sky is not that colour. It is not just the fever that has stiffened in her hair. Living in subjection has frozen the entire world. Surely the grass should be rippling. The narrator spends her days gluing her church of burnt matchsticks, a way of trying to build meaning out of a life of abuse. The matchsticks presumably left over from those cigarettes the jailer was burning her with. This is the only religion available to her, a menial, damaged faith in her ability to make something of her circumstances, to transform burns into beaks. It is not enough. She needs allies, outside support. But dreaming of someone else results in further punishment, more hurt. Yet again, we have the sense of the narrator being able to imagine where her jailer cannot. And here, for the first time, we see the jailer recognise this as subversion. Throughout the poem, the jailer burns holes in meaning, his actions repeatedly described in those flat, blunt, factual sentences. Joe Gill has written that metaphor seems inadequate to the task of representing the scene, and the speaker falls back on bold description. Indeed, imagination or fantasy become themselves grounds for punishment. In the seventh stanza, the narrator asks herself how she came to be here, what crime she committed, recalling Esther Greenwood in the bell jar, subjected to electric shock therapy, the agony of which forces her to wonder what terrible thing it was she had done to deserve it. Faced with appalling suffering, both Esther and the narrator of The Jailer grasp at an obscure guilt or wrongdoing on their own part as the reason for their pains. For the jailer himself, it is clear that guilt will not penetrate his armour of fakery, his high cold masks of amnesia. How did I get here, indeterminate criminal, I die with variety, hung, starved, burned, hooked? Now the narrator reaches a rational conclusion. The fact that she cannot determine what kind of criminal she is explains this multitude of sufferings and of deaths that she is being subjected to. If the crime can't be determined, neither can the punishment. 
Bethany Hickok writes that it is possible that Plath, who was living in Britain in 1962, was aware of the widely discussed debate over British prison reform that focused on determinate and indeterminate prison sentences, which eventually led to the 1967 Criminal Justice Act. Now, while indeterminate sentences were framed as being more just, offering a hope of rehabilitation to prisoners, for Plath, indeterminate criminal marks the wife's status in an abusive marriage. Her crime, her sentence, and why she is being abused are indeterminate. Serving multiple sentences and meeting multiple executions, hung, starved, burned, hooked, implies the existence of multiple selves. Gina Whisker has written... A favourite gothic trope, the split female self, is at the heart of Plath's writing. She problematises ambiguities inherent in women's sexually and socially constructed roles. Mother, wife, lover, whore, creative artist. Showing each to be a version of self, each a performance. In Plath's work, the speaker is provocatively and dangerously self-aware, revealing, yet trapped by and collusive in, the role and life paradoxes she exposes. It's interesting that you mentioned the lioness thing, which I didn't realise that that they were originally one because lioness is much as is a little bit more positive in tone, and the narrator has a little bit more agency, it seems. Mm-hmm. And I was going to ask you: we have the the sense of the gaslighting, and it's very clear which way the power dynamic um, is between these two characters. But there is the sense that there's almost like a, a codependency thing. The um, uh, you know, what would the dark do without fevers to eat? What would the light do without eyes to knife? What would he do 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 without me so is this kind of sort of symbiotic role of abuser and abused i wondered if you having said that about lioness i wonder if that was almost like setting up the the transition to to lioness a little bit like this idea of like codependency that like breaks off yeah the the sort of because that's the first the first indication or the first the strong indication that we have that that she, she has a little bit of ownership of this role I hadn't considered that actually. Um, so in other words, like it, are you asking if the same kind of like, if it's the same kind of like psychological or like emotional transformation, like, go yeah. from, like, Oh, I'm like stuck in this to like, wait, hold on. I think I've like, there are ways that I could get out of this. This is a way out. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that that's, that's absolutely um, a theme, not only of, of those three poems. Right. Uh, but, uh, or like two, depending on how you look at it. Right. Cause the two were once one, um, but actually of, of so much of her work from that period. And I think that's another one of the great misconceptions and tragedies of Plath, right. Is that she's um, understood. Well, it's, it's like two things like, she's understood as painting herself as this like pathetic victim. Um, And then also um, second wave feminists are frequently accused of painting her as this like martyr victim, right? But but part of that I think has to do with the fact that like these poems, like all three of these poems, right? Um, are which are poems where she sort of has this transition, as you pointed out, from like, oh, I'm trapped in this thing and I've got to get out of it. And then she sort of starts to see ways to get out of it. They were excised from her work. They were uncollected, essentially, um, until the early 1970s. Um, I don't know. I don't have the table of contents in front of me. But so um, some of those poems uh, ended up coming out in um, Winter Trees and Crossing the Water, which were like two smaller collections of her work that came out after Ariel. But 
they um, weren't understood as part of the canon of Ariel poems, but that's actually what Plath intended them to be, right? She intended Ariel to be a book. She famously told people like, oh, it starts with love and it ends with spring. So she, the, the, her, her original manuscript ended with the poem wintering um, and the last lines of wintering are the bees are flying, they taste the spring. So like, it's this poem about surviving into the, the warmth, right? And like getting and making it out. Um, but they, well, her wintering was included in Ariel, but the um, it, the ordering was was very very different, and so uh, we didn't understand her that way, right? We understood her as this woman who had succumbed to this terrible fate, which you know was sort of she understood according to the logic of the ordering of the those poems as um, inevitable, right? Mm. So I think in many ways the the that the editing and, and also the marketing around her um, kind of makes her into a victim and makes her into this person who like sort of writes herself into this terrible fate and then can't escape it. But I don't think that's how she saw herself at all. In fact, she also wrote to Ruth Boycher in October of, of 1962, how can I get free, right? So she was very much trying to and this is in terms of Plath's biography, not necessarily her creative work, but at the time she was very much trying to find a way to free herself from the situation that she found herself in. And that it didn't just include like marriage as the sort of like, I mean, I think that especially now, like we tend to think of getting out of a marriage as a relatively easy thing. Like divorce is very common. Um, I mean, it's emotionally challenging, right? But it, if you go and you file for divorce, like people aren't like, my God, like it's not the shock of the century, right? Yeah. Um, but it was very, very different in England in 1962. And another thing that is frequently sort of not factored into our understanding of Plath trying to get out of that marriage is that she was married to the most famous, not writer necessarily, but certainly the most famous poet in England and one of the most famous poets in America. And she was married to this person with this like larger than life presence who also had a lot of power, right? Like he had a lot of cultural capital. Um, he was able to influence um, a lot of like who took her work, right? So, I mean, Heather Clark wrote about this quite a bit at the end of Red Comet. She discusses how like without the patronage of Ted Hughes and Al Alvarez in December, January, February, 1962 and 63, um, Plath's like social capital pretty much dissolves, right? And she's like essentially by herself. And then she's having a hard time getting work. Um, so, in, 19, in the fall of 1962, when she's living by herself, she's trying to think of a way around that. Like, how can I get through this? How can I be my own woman again? How can I have a life that is independent of this guy? Because I think she knew even then, like, this is really going to be hard to do. Um, so I think that the poems are, are also partly about that. The final two stanzas of the poem go as follows. I imagine him impotent as distant thunder, in whose shadow I have eaten my ghost ration. I wish him dead or away. That, it seems, is the impossibility. That being free. What would the dark do without fevers to eat? What would the light do without eyes to knife? What would he do, 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 without me? Plath ends the poem with her narrator once again in the act of imagining, picturing her jailer as thunder, intimidating but remote, too far away to touch her. In this impotent shadow, she has been in a state of living death, starved on her ghost ration. Stephen Gould Axelrod compares the narrator's position to Plath's portrayal of herself in her journals, 
writing that in the latter we find a woman deprived by her poet husband of her own inner life, hounded by his fanaticism, plagued by his continuous, what are you thinking, what are you going to do now? In the poem, writes Axelrod, this destructive male figure becomes a demon of possession and dependency. His female victim, threatened with psychological extinction, images her anguish in metonyms and metaphors of shadow. A knight in a black sack, a day full of holes, a black woman enslaved to a white man's sadistic desires, a marriage to distant thunder, in whose shadow I have eaten my ghost ration. However much she wishes for it, it is impossible, the narrator says, to escape her jailer. This is one thing she cannot imagine. It is almost as if she has been imprisoned since birth. In her college years, Plath wrote in her journals, Being born a woman is my awful tragedy. From the moment I was conceived, I was doomed to sprout breasts and ovaries rather than penis and scrotum. To have my whole circle of action, thought and feeling rigidly circumscribed by my inescapable femininity. This inescapable femininity is the narrator's only crime. Paradoxically, what she is guilty of is being in prison. Janine Dobbs has written, What is more interesting than the fact that Platt's work reflects pain and suffering is the fact that she sometimes portrays physical and mental pain as retribution for doing or being bad, and that her poetry so frequently contains images that associate physical and mental suffering and also effacement, a kind of living death, as well as death itself, with domestic relationships and or domestic roles. The awful codependency of jailer and victim sounds both apocalyptic and domestic in the poem's final lines. If this symbiosis were broken, dark and light would have no purpose, and we are left with a sinister parody of the doting but exasperated housewife. What would he do, do, do without me? And that brings us to the end of The Jailer and the end of today's episode. A huge thank you to my special guest, Emily Van Dyne. Make sure to tune in tomorrow for an extended interview with Emily in which we talk more about her work, her history with Plath and her upcoming book, Loving Sylvia Plath. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. (laughs) 